Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. You'll find 100 of these awesome interviews in my podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my catalog of past episodes to listen to them all. By the way, I'm taking time off for the holidays and to prepare new interviews for release in January 2023. In the meantime, this week's episode is a replay of one of my favorite interviews from a few years ago with Tom D. I believe you'll enjoy listening to it again, or for the first time, if you missed its original release in January 2021. On my show today is Tom D., a man with an incredible story, whose life was turned inside out and upside down by alcoholism, drug addiction, and crime. From a difficult childhood, he emerged into a troubled adolescence, drinking at 14, shoplifting, and getting kicked out of high school. Hanging with the older boys, his drinking increased beyond sociable, and his drugs got harder, culminating in a ruinous heroin addiction. His 20s and his early 30s saw him in and out of county jails and state prison until his third felony conviction for armed robbery at age 36 finally resulted in a life sentence at a maximum security prison. With alcohol and various drugs widely available from other inmates, his life behind bars provided little chance of sobriety or parole. Amidst the bleak realization that he'd spend the rest of his life in prison, there came a small spark of hope ignited by memories of the early AA meetings Tom had attended during his many stints in the county jails. Though he hadn't succeeded with the program in the past, he started going to AA meetings in prison, brought there by a small group of dedicated members of the outside AA community. He found his sponsor inside, who guided him in working the 12 Steps, Slowly, he began to turn his thinking and spiritual awareness around. Ultimately, he found that service to other inmates from a genuinely humble frame of mind gave his life newfound meaning and purpose. But that's just part of his story. You'll hear the rest in a moment. Suffice it to say that Tom's AA program, Forged in Prison, was burnished in the years since he was released. He has become a cherished member of the AA community and a vital part of the recovery scene. He's a fine and trusted friend to many, and one of my favorite people in the fellowship. So, clear your schedule for the next hour or so, and enjoy this remarkable interview with my AA brother, Tom D. My name's Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Tom. I'm so glad you're here today. And uh, first of all, I, I want to congratulate you on an upcoming birthday. That's the 6th, is it, of January? That's correct. And it's 28, hey. 28 years. Wow. Right. That's astounding. So did you ever think you'd live this long? <laughs> and not this long or not this long sober. <laughs> Both. <laughs> well, you, you know, you're, you're one of my favorite people in the program, and I see you on a regular basis. And before the pandemic, of course, we would see each other in meetings all the time. And since the pandemic, we've been in Zoom meetings together. And when you're going to meetings with people, you get to hear little bits and pieces about their lives and you have to fill everything else in. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast so that you can relate what it was like, what happened, but just as importantly, what it's like now and it has been since 
you got sober. Just by the way of a little bit of a historical perspective, can you start us out on like where you grew up and, and what was life was like, uh, a brief synopsis of when you started drinking? Sure. Uh, and, and thank you. So I grew up in Westview, Bel Air, mm-hmm. Bel Air for the most part. Yeah. My whole family drank and they drank normally, mm. which I, so I was, uh, saw everybody, grandparents, aunts, uncles, people that visited drinking what I would call cordially, you know, oh. backyard barbecues when we went fishing or hunting and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or like Thanksgiving, Christmas, wine, wine, all kids got wine yeah. at the table just as well. We had a little glass of wine hmm. just as other people, uh, as adults got a larger glass. Uh-huh. So did you notice anybody getting drunk? Uh, were there any people who got tipsy that you noticed? They, we, I had one uncle that ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh-huh. And uh, I remember when what they told me, and I was probably like five years old, mm-hmm. uh, th- they told me that Uncle Carol was sick. sick. And, and he was. He was falling down and throwing up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I just, and, and at that time, my, def, you know, my definition of sick was he fit what he was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, and no one, um, I never could tell the difference in anybody else. They seem to have, they seem to have a lot of fun when we're barbecuing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but but I never noticed anybody. They didn't get, they didn't start talking poorly to each other, or did they start acting, you know, in a way that seemed uncivil? And mm-hmm. and I can remember getting sips. I kind of worked the, you know, worked the the, the course. You know, I would mm-hmm. go around. The, everybody had they had those little stands that stuck in the ground yeah. back then, and they would have a mixed drink in it, and they usually had fruit in them, and they were. They would let me get the fruit so I could get the slice of orange or the maraschino cherry out. Mm-hmm. But in doing that, I always got a sip, you know, and it was kind of scolded. But, you know, they never no one ever made it seem like it was a bad deal. And you get about 10, 10 sips of a, <laughs> of, of a mixed drink. And you're a little <laughs> and, kid. <laughs> right. Pretty soon you start, you know, sw- uh, swinging on the swings becomes more fun and yeah. all that stuff. Right. Yeah. A little more. That's tough when you're a little kid. So the environment in which you grew up, kind of a middle class uh, environment, right? Yeah. So definitely, uh, it was. Um, you know, my my father was killed uh, in a car accident when mm. I was six, and my mother raised us for the rest of our you know a life until we were adults and left home. Mm-hmm. My my mother raised us by herself. Uh, so she worked at the uh, VA hospital. She uh-huh. went back. Well, both of my parents were college educated, mm. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after my my dad got killed, um, she went back to work hmm. and took care of the four of us. Wow! So four, are you the? Where are you in the line of siblings? I'm, I was the oldest. You were the still, oldest. I'm still the oldest. Still the oldest. Yeah. Do you? Lots of people get to alcohol or drug use as a way to escape from or treat whatever ills they suffered in their family of origin what was that like for you and in your family of origin was it was it peaceful was it chaotic how how did that look two things are true for me and you know because now i do believe it's a family disease Mm -hmm. uh, so that i I had a genetic predisposition Mm -hmm. for alcoholism and i didn't know that then but i can remember before my dad died before anything that seemed 
what I would have perceived as really traumatic had ever occurred. Mm -hmm. uh, I can remember wanting to drink because my dad and my granddad were drinking beer. I wanted to have a beer because they were having a beer. Mm -hmm. and, and I was like five or something then. Mm. And my dad told me I could have a beer <clears throat> if I could take one of those old real thick a beer can mm -hmm. and, and, and crunch it with my hand in the middle and then take the two ends and fold it over. And he did it and showed me what to do. And I went straight to the kitchen and got one out of the trash can and kneeled on the can uh -huh. and then took all my weight, my five-year-old weight and folded the can over and took it in and presented it to him <laughs> and uh, said there. And, and he, he looked at it. Pitched it in the trash, drained the beer he was drinking, and uh, told me to show him again. <laughs> so he knew that I, he knew I was uh, that I had crunched that can with my hand. Oh man, what a rite! Yeah. What a rite of passage that was. So, did you ever get the beer after that? Uh, that I felt like almost gave me permission mm. to drink. It was mm -hmm. just a matter of when. And of course, uh, sure. you know, we're we're about the same age, so there was a point in time where the cans got really easier to smash. I'll bet. I'll Bet. But uh, and it wasn't until like I got sober this time that I actually tied in the fact that my dad's death when I was six years old mm -hmm. was was an event that I just tried not to feel that pain. Yeah, I get that. So I think that may have been what you were um, aiming for. Yeah, I was aiming towards you know what your first experience was, but when it when it comes to the first experience of actually drinking based on your own decision to take a drink, when did that start? So we were probably 12, 10. Mm -hmm. uh, there was just, you know, guys trying to be guys. We were not old enough to get out and do anything on our own. Mm -hmm. And we started, uh, we would do odd jobs. And sometimes people would, you know, think, well, you know, they could pay us with beer and it was a cheaper way to pay us. And we would huh. take beer. Of course, it didn't take much. And then we, <clears throat> we drank too fast and we drank hot beer and we didn't know that it made a difference and all that stuff. So, and, mm -hmm. and we were probably about 12. And then mm -hmm. we started sneaking in people's garages because they stored alcohol in the garages. So we just mm -hmm. we would go in there and purloin something from someone else, whether it's a fifth of whiskey or, or, or whatever it might be, beer. Hmm. Did that initiate that initiated your drinking plus other behaviors? Yes. Yeah, I yeah. was stealing one, you know, <laughs> yeah. like uh, what anything my mother uh, uh, directed me to do. Uh -huh. And um and then we started drinking and we was usually weekends and mm -hmm. we, I can remember we stole a, um, a, a fifth of whiskey mm -hmm. because my mother had a maid that came in and she's not really a part of our family, although she mm -hmm. did not live with us, but she took care of us when we came home from school, she got dinner uh, cooked and uh, mm -hmm. had the house uh, clean. Mm. I went in and took a fifth of whiskey and, poured it into another container and left a little bit in the bottle of the bottom of mm -hmm. the bottle and then broke the bottle on the floor and put a bunch of water with it. And, <laughs> and so there would be enough volume of water. And then I, I went, Oh my God, you know, and she came in and, and I said, Oh, mom's going to kill me. And, and, the, and our maid's name was Vera and Vera says, don't worry about it, baby. I'll, t I'll tell her I did it so you don't Aww. get in trouble. And I thought, thank you. And we went right out that night. And, and <laughs> oh, man. Some guy that could was old enough to drive drove us around, and we got drunk riding around in Bel Air. <laughs> wow. And you were you were how old? Oh, probably 14 then. Four, 14. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to you got to learn about uh, uh, deception as a way to to get alcohol. 
Right. What, now, what was it like when you when you drank? Uh, w- were you sick? Did you get a hangover? Did, what was the feeling when you were that age and getting drunk? Initially, I started like sneaking beer out of once I realized that the beer was always available somewhere in somebody's mm-hmm. garage. I started sure. sneak, sneaking a few beers and not drinking too much. I, would, I right. realized that I could drink like two or three beers and just mm-hmm. get I, it changed the way I felt. Mm. And uh, and I would be up late at night in the summer, uh, same about the same age, you know, mm-hmm. thirteen something. I was old enough not to, that my mother didn't make me go to bed when it wasn't school time. Sure, uh-huh. but uh, everybody else was had to go to bed, so I was up by myself. And I, TV had to go off like at midnight anyway, mm-hmm. so I'd be up just watching something on TV like Johnny Carson or something. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then uh, then when we stole the whiskey. That was the first time we 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 drank. We didn't know that like the the difference in alcohol content or anything. We didn't know how mm-hmm. much stronger whiskey was than beer, mm-hmm. so we had no idea. We we drank that. Uh, there was uh, three of us, and we drank a fifth of whiskey, and we mm. were we were hammered. <laughs> we, we couldn't stand up. We tried to get back in the house, holding on to each other, stand, tried we could hold each other up, and kept falling down. We got uh-huh. busted, couldn't get in the house. I mean, I came, I walked in the house trying to walk a straight line. I'm just trying to get to my bedroom. And I just veered off like one of those jets or planes that's been shot. It's <laughs> crashed over into the kitchen. And my mother said, what's wrong with you? And I said, nothing. She says, have you been drinking? <laughs> oh, my God. And what'd you tell her? <laughs> I said, yeah. And then she said, where'd you get it? And I told her that I, that we tricked the maid and stole it from her. You know, like, you know, you, you have a tendency to confess when you're drunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What were the consequences of that for you? I had to mow the lawn on Saturday mornings, and it was mm-hmm. a Friday uh, evening that we did that. And, I, and she got me up at the crack of dawn and told me how embarrassed she was and how mm-hmm. you know what you know this is you know this isn't the way she raised me and you know get out there you're going to go mow the yard and I remember mowing the yard puking just I'd push the <laughs> lawnmower for four or five feet and then I'd stop and hurl you know, or just wretch and it was miserable but it, yeah. you know, of course it didn't make me not want a, a drink uh, yeah uh, yeah. Yeah, not a bad, not a bad trade. Uh, uh, getting drunk for mowing the lawn, even though you got you got pretty sick. So you were fourteen when that's going on, and were, were you hanging with a particular group, let's say in high school and and beyond, that encouraged or supported or bolstered your drinking? It seemed as if everybody I knew. So we mm-hmm. we were we were a group of people, and we skateboarded. Sur- we were surfing. And, mm-hmm. and we would do, you know, just the dumbest stuff just for, you know, entertainment. We didn't have, we didn't, we weren't going anywhere particularly. We would just be somewhere like at the park or something like that. And then we'd start beating on each other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, when, when did drugs enter into the picture for you? At about, about that time. Mm-hmm. You know, there was, we, we, there wasn't a different, it was hard to differentiate the one thing, you know, they, people started having marijuana was available. Mm-hmm. first you know and then and then and then it was anything else and then anything else that came became everything else without going deeply into it in, in, a, mm-hmm. in an aa talk the the idea that it eventually became everything that was around eventually i tried yeah and some of those things took me over yeah like what's your favorite drug what do you got <laughs> exactly right 
you know, pill for every every parent's medicine chest. If we looked at something that would either help them reduce their weight, or it was something to help them sleep at night or treat anxiety, we'd read the directions on the bottom. We say, oh, we want some of those. Did you sense that you were starting to have a problem with it, or or did you just go along and it didn't affect you too much? I, I don't think I saw it as a problem. I mean, hmm. I can remember my my you know once it became evident to to my mother that, you know, I'm, they took, I remember going, they took me to some sort of a group counseling thing. I had, it, it, it was a number of years before I got ever even heard about a 12 step meeting. Hmm. I, I mean, hmm. it was uh, literally till I got sober the first time when I was mm-hmm. about 21, but I went to some counseling groups where they mm-hmm. talked, you know, like the Texas research of Institute of mental sciences, Mm-hmm. Um, had a, had a group where we went there and talked and everybody went and got high afterwards, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but we had a kind of a, we'd all have a kind of conversation. We were, they were, it, it, it's similar to what AA is, except mm-hmm. for that nobody was like committed to staying sober. They were just mm-hmm. committed to coming in, you know, once a week and talking. At what point during your drinking and drug use, did you start to notice that there were that that it was a problem uh, or what was your what was the trajectory of your life like between the social drinking in high school and the pilfering of people's medicine cabinets till you got to the point where it was becoming a problem i, I suppose when i you know i started thinking that it would be easier to um the, people would say you can do this and make more money so it became mm-hmm. like a money thing so we uh, started we would sell drugs or do things like that or take mm-hmm. something that didn't belong to us and mm-hmm. um, everything that looked like you know somebody's not uh, keeping a close eye on their things particularly businesses and stuff like that mm-hmm. were initially stuff that we thought well taking advantage of all the regular people and we thought ourselves as regular people so we would take advantage of them and it could be mm-hmm. as simple as um Sneaking into the movies, mm-hmm. which was to save a few bucks like that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, shoplifting at the mm-hmm. local drugstore for uh, nuisance kind of stuff, you know, inconsequential, mm-hmm. smaller things. Um, then it kind of just progressed and got worse and worse as that went along. Children learn from somebody a little older. So there's almost always somebody older a year or two that's giving you the good information, oh, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. whether it's yeah. about alcohol or whatever else you might do, girls or anything. Yeah. Sure. So somebody you want to emulate, somebody you look up to. So whatever they're doing, uh, you do. Was the drinking and, and drug use, did that soften up your your morals or was the influence of drugs and alcohol in any way in your mind responsible for the other behavior, the stealing and the that kind of thing? I would say so. You know, to me, yes. You know, mm-hmm. because, you know, one, I lowered my inhibition. So like uh, I was I always felt like I was I felt like I was a small guy and yeah. I felt like I was kind of like not uh, able to take care of myself by myself. So and and, you know, and I learned you know, when I was little, I had a, I mean, when I was little, I had a rifle, you know, so mm-hmm. I already, uh, had been gone hunting with my grandfather and my dad and everything before yeah. I was able to hold, hold a rifle up and hold it out straight. Mm-hmm. So, and I think every boy in our family had a pocket knife, you know, mm-hmm. and we learned how to sharpen our pocket knife and it was a tool, you know, so mm-hmm. they cut string with or whittle on sure. a piece of wood or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but I started always, but I 
carried one. And then as time went on, I kept getting a bigger one. And then I would, you know, and if you're um, under the influence of alcohol or other things, and sometimes the idea that, you know, do you think you can pick on me because I'm skinny or small or whatever right. it is, and I'll right. pull this out and prove to you otherwise, which led to some incidents where um, I ended up cutting a couple of people oh just my. to kind of get them, get away, you know, and yeah. Pulled, yeah. a, pulled a knife on my, uh, my mother had one boyfriend in my, in her entire post my father's death life. And right. he was around for a few years. And I got, he, he, he got after me one day, chasing me when I was about 10 years old and had me hemmed up in a corner. Mm -hmm. um, one of my other little brothers, younger brothers mm -hmm. came and pitched me my pocket knife. And I remember opening it just kind of like a little bitty kid waving something in front of him. He, he could have you know, taken me down and taken away from me, but he slowed down and stopped. And I remember thinking, I remember that, you know, you learn lessons the way you learn lessons. I remember that he stopped and backed up. And I remember mm -hmm. that night is why I stopped and wow. why he didn't whip my ass. And so I, that's just like, I put that in a toolkit. Yeah, that was your that was the lesson that made it okay later on to do that kind of stuff. Right. Could you give me an idea what things were like from the time you got out of high school until the next major uh, milestone in your life? So we were coming to the attention of the officials in high school. So I never uh -huh. completed high school. They asked me to uh, in Beller High School. They asked me to move on down the road, huh. and that was directly related to you know. Uh, some of it was truancy. Mm -hmm. Some of it was just being a rebel, want, not wanting to put my shirt tail in and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. They were mm -hmm. not catching us under the influence, although we were sitting out in the car uh, smoking marijuana and drinking and stuff before we went to school. Um, mm -hmm. So they they moved me out of there, and then I tried to go to Lamar. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I had to wait a few months and get a, a, an extreme haircut. And mm -hmm. uh, we went in there as the best I could look like I was going to church or something. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and the guy said, we really don't want your kind here. <laughs> mm -hmm. I thought, well, okay, this is a losing operation. So I didn't, wow. um, that, and at that point I was, uh, you know, off and running, you know, the, I was big enough then at, um, 15 going on 16, you know, that I just thought I was, you know, I'm always been tall. So I was like six foot five then. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, and I just thought I was grown, you know, and mm -hmm. I started, you know, running around with guys that were a little older than me that didn't, that were already, you know, out of their family homes. I wasn't not there yet. Yeah. And it, I started running with an older group of people that did a lot of things. And I just, you know, those guys were sort of, I don't want to say heroes to me, but they were role models for sure. Sure. They were guys that had fast cars and they were selling drugs and, you know, they were, and I would see them hurt people, but I thought, well, then people were scared of them. And I thought, oh, okay. that works, you know, and so yeah. there they you learn a lot of lessons that aren't particularly beneficial to being a productive human being trying to, you know, in emulating them or looking up to them, did did you start to engage in that behavior yourself, hurting people and making them scared of you and that kind of thing? Right. That, that's uh. true. I did. It, it didn't feel like it really until um, I, I feel like that whatever I was doing, that once I got addicted, then I became, you know, one was I was addicted. You know, I mean, and I would switch like I would mm -hmm. stop, stop using heroin and then I would 
be, I would be back to drinking. You know, and mm-hmm. I always drank with it. So it, yeah. whether I was doing whatever I did, alcohol and then marijuana were kind of a backstop. They were always kind of a piece of the puzzle. Uh-huh. And, but if I would go into withdrawal, say this is doing, it's going too bad, I would increase my drinking. So I would have like mm-hmm. a, fi- a fifth, and I would tell myself, um, they like tequila was like a drug. So that's what I told myself. So, well, mm-hmm. and so I didn't feel like I didn't think uh, I, I didn't feel very favorably towards people that were alcoholic, but I didn't have a problem with heroin addicts. Um, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's curious. <laughs> but, you know, and so I would so I would convince myself that tequila was really like a drug. It wasn't like I was drinking alcohol and I'd have a fifth of it. I'd sometimes have to wake up in the middle of the night and get a, get a, a couple of sips to get sleep through the night. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? You know, a lot of a lot of times. When we're talking about drug usage, because you know, I was co-addicted as well, but we always, in linking it with alcohol, say I use drugs alcoholically. And what you're talking about is using alcohol. <laughs> like a drug. <laughs> like a drug. <laughs> so where did that heroin uh, use kick in and where did that take you? Well, it's a monster. You know, there's no mm-hmm. uh, there's no upside to it. And I had... Um, some of the older guys I'd learned, I mean, I was deathly afraid of needles when I was mm. a kid, but I became, you know, once you start doing it and you say that's a faster way to get whatever you're trying to do done, I became uh-huh. a, an IV drug user. And that, you know, and I stayed away from heroin for a couple of years doing uh, stimulants and stuff like that because I thought, well, you know, enjoy life, stay awake. And then in that, everything turns against you, as they say. And, you know, yeah. the reason we do drugs and alcohol is because they feel good initially. Right. They work. Every Alcohol mm-hmm. worked or would never drank it again. And, and the same is true for all the other poisons. And, yeah. and uh, they, they, they have an initial effect that's, uh, you know, that works. And you go, wow, that's, you know, you know. and then it, and then it turns against you. Even the most benign, in my case, you know, marijuana became one of those things. It was the last thing that once I quit using heroin and alcohol, I hadn't even considered stopping weed necessarily because i just didn't think it was it just seemed innocuous huh. you know to me and then i re- remember uh, uh, a counselor in the program i was in asked me somebody went up there and they said hey those guys are smoking weed <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in the living quarters and he came and said are you smoking weed and uh, over there and i said that's a personal question he said not a personal question tom it's a yes or a no question Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. are you smoking weed over there? And I said, yeah, but who told on me? And he said, well, you're, you snitched on yourself by, you know, what you're doing in front of other people. Mm-hmm. And then he asked me that at that time, you know, I had not ever really considered, you know, like it was that kind of like you would think it would be like a real aha moment. And you would know all that stuff. I mean, sure. I'd been sober before at that time, the last time when I got sober in 93, yeah, but I was just not uh, looking at it that way. I was thinking, Heroin and alcohol are kicking my ass. Cocaine, I know, will kick my ass. Methamphetamine will kick my ass. But weed, I saw it was not, not that bad of a deal, you know. So you, you turned to marijuana to kick the drugs and alcohol at the time? Well, I was using it the last thing because it was just around. Yeah. I mean, more, more, I, I didn't go hunting for it, particularly uh-huh. at that time. It was just happened to be somebody had some, and so it was, I, I, I'd say, okay, because I didn't have a defense against saying okay to that, huh. you know. And, yeah. you know, I think it had always been a piece of the puzzle, but it hadn't, sure. been, it hadn't been one of those um, things where that I would go to extreme lengths necessarily mm-hmm. 
There's a whole lot of yeah. stuff. Stuff that you recognize later because THC's yeah. uh, the the way it's stored in your system, its yeah. half life doesn't allow for you to really experience if you're like really consume a lot of THC and then you don't consume any, you don't really yeah. notice the effects of the decline of the THC because it dissipates at such a slow rate. So it's mm-hmm. and I and I could look back in time and see where when there'd be a uh, year old enough there, there used to be droughts in the summer you know, oh, yeah. and, and then when so when there would be a, a week or two where you couldn't get any by the time you a week or two had gone by you were willing to go to any bad part of town and go get yeah. somebody let somebody sell you something that wasn't even a close facsimile but just yeah. because you wanted some whereas yeah. at, at, at day one or two or three that that craving wasn't that strong it took a while for the for the THC to dissipate completely yeah. from a person that smoked on a regular basis I, wow. I never knew that though back then can, can you give me kind of a, a, a timeline between when all this was happening and whenever the disease and or consequences finally caught up with you sure I ended up um, I'd, I'd robbed a, uh, a drug connection and got kidnapped mm. by them. They picked me up going to go rob somebody else. You know, I was just mm. doing a real kind of base street kind of crime. And How old were you at that time? How old were you when that happened? 21. Well, actually, I was probably 20. So they and, sure. and so they, these guys scooped me up, held me for hostage. And by that time, my mama, my grandmama, and all them were, they would not come put any more money on the table for me. Oh. And so um, I was out, and they were holding me in a, an apartment complex in Southeast Houston, and they beat me up some and were uh, mm-hmm. threatening to shoot me and all this stuff. And I was calling around trying to find somebody that would, you know, pay the, the money that was owed, a few hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. That I'd cost those guys, and mm-hmm. um, the this guy that I went to high school with, that was a, a starting quarterback on our high school football team, valedictorian, mm-hmm. most popular guy, but he was also a guy that drank and used, and I ran around with him regularly uh-huh. on a daily basis um, since we were in fifth or sixth grade, and mm-hmm. he he came and and bailed me out. But he said, don't ever call me again. And he took me to Ben Tobb's emergency room and, and dropped me off that night. And hmm. uh, they kept me there and ended up giving me something that was kind of like a psychiatric medication or something mm-hmm. that made me goof, mm-hmm. feel real goofy. But I was still uh, in withdrawal from drugs, from, al- mm-hmm. from opiates. And uh, I went back to the place I was living with a couple of scuzzy guys. And um, I realized something had to happen. So I called my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother, who wouldn't come up with the money didn't mind you know trying to and i told her i got to do something or i don't know what to do and she said well i have these meetings at the church and i'm going hmm. and i thought oh man the church i was they're trying to you know convert me back to you know going to church and i didn't want to do yeah. that but i thought uh-huh. well i didn't I, I didn't have any solution other than that so i went mm-hmm. and i had a friend of mine who you know drove mm-hmm. that actually she came and got her mama's car and mm-hmm. <laughs> came and picked me up <laughs> and took me to my grandmama's house uh, when they carried me over there, and uh, this uh, two people from the church came. It was a priest and a, reco- and, a, and, a and a guy that's recovering uh, alcoholic uh, mm-hmm. and addict. And he mm-hmm. and he they came in, and the the guy that was a uh, you know a member of the program came in and uh-huh. talked to me. And the preacher went in there and talked to my grandmother. And I, um, as they say, you know, the therapeutic value of one alcoholic working with another. 
Mm-hmm. And what he did in, in the hour or so that we spent together, he convinced mm-hmm. me that he understood what I was going through. And I had never, wow. I had never sat down with him and that there was a solution. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, and I, and I did never, and I didn't really believe that. Mm-hmm. I wasn't hearing about it anymore. And he told me, if you're interested, we have a meeting at the church tonight. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I came, I went. That was, and I got, that time I, um, I, I got, I got sober and stayed sober for about a year and a half. And I, uh, I relapsed through a series of just getting overwhelmed with being an adult. Yeah. I, I say that in hindsight at the time, if I would have known it, if somebody says, well, you're, you're fixing to get married to this woman, you're going to do it in the church, uh-huh. you're, you're holding down a job, you're paying your bills and everything. Right. And uh, people look at you as being a responsible member of this uh, sober community. I, that pressure was, was a real but unacknowledged factor. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I was just going to interject that uh, now this is happening in the early 70s. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay. So what what was your program like for that year and a half? I went to a meeting every day. So a 12 step recovery meeting. I was working at a treatment facility Mm -hmm. with uh, people that were younger than me, but I always went to meetings with people that were, I went to also to meetings where older people went, went to Mm -hmm. some like Alder Street men's group. Alder Street. Yeah. Sure. Man. And I felt like we were in high church or something over there. (laughs) (laughs) These guys, it was kind of, everybody was real kind of serious. And the the other meetings were a little less, but we went to some down on the waterfront and stuff like Uh that that were. Sure. Yeah. Uh But I got tired of, um, you know, what happened was, you know, because my sponsor would tell me, you know, when you get a craving, I get a craving every now and then. And he'd say, he says, just give me a call and we'll say, I'll, you know, come on over yeah. and we'll have a cup of coffee. We'll talk about it. He says, they'll, it'll start getting less and less, you know, mm-hmm. it's almost mm-hmm. like with the big book and Dr. Bob thing. It was this, sure. I, and I didn't really quite understand because part of it, I was internalized. And as a young person, I just, I wanted to be seen as an adult and not some scared kid. I always yeah. there's like I think there's a piece of maybe all of us that just doesn't want to be seen as a scared kid. Yeah. And where we experience some portion of our life is being that frightened individual. Yeah. And yeah. right. And uh-huh. so when uh, the third or fourth time it happened, I, I thought, I'm not going to call that guy. This is I'm just showing weakness and I don't want to be perceived as weak. Yeah. Yeah. And I now know, you know, in hindsight, is that I made a deal with the disease. It's like it wrapped a warm blanket around me and said, hang on, buddy. Hmm. We're coming to get you. You know, we got you. Don't worry about it. You don't need to call that sponsor. We got you. You know, and I left from a a meeting where I was talking to uh, parents of students, teaching them drug education and talking to the PTA and left Uh from that meeting and called this girl that I'd met, you know, in a, a kind of random way the universe unfolds. I was buying a concert ticket mm-hmm. at, uh, at a place, and I ran sure. into this girl I knew that was a cheerleader that I used to date. She was mm-hmm. working at this place, and I could tell that she was high. And I kind of just mm-hmm. logged it in my brain. Cause I didn't really have a place to go back to where people were that I knew were using. And I saw her, and I thought, mm, uh-huh. I'll remember that. And I went in and told wow. her this elaborate lie. Later, she told me, she said, I didn't really believe you, but I didn't care. You wanted to buy heroin. I, I was willing to get you some. <laughs> you know, I, I had a really complicated story. That's not, you know, but it was like, because I just thought she was going to, because I felt convicted. 
So you leave you leave the good side of town to go over to the bad side of town. You you leave service to others to uh, to become service to yourself. That's uh, that's quite a that's quite a downward uh, downward roll. Yeah, isn't and, it? you know what's curious is is that I told myself so because of what the book says jails institutions are death. So I was to take some of that stuff like real literal. So I said yeah. so I so I'd been a, a night or two in jail. And I've, I've been in right. a mental institution. I've been up on the 14th floor of a place that was like a the, where they mm-hmm. were keeping me separated from drugs and, and myself. And and so I thought, well, death's the only other thing. So mm-hmm. I bought enough heroin right. to kill myself with. And and then I went and took back to this apartment where I stayed mm-hmm. with uh, uh, other people in the program. They were at there playing. They were playing bridge in the living room. And I just walked by and said, man, I got the flu or something. I'm going to my room. And I went in there and. Never even tried to do enough to kill myself. I did just enough to see how good it was. And then I did a little bit more and a little bit hmm. more until it was all gone two or three days later. And I called my sponsor and confessed. And he said, he said, I knew it the other day when you called and told me you were sick and you couldn't come to work. <laughs> you know, I could hear it in your voice. He says, he says, are you done? Oh, my. And I said, yeah, yeah, I am. You know, oh. and he says, well, and they were so kind to me. They, nobody shamed me, blamed me. They said, we'll take some of the mm-hmm. weight off of you. You know, we'll give you more time to go to more meetings for yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. my pride and ego could not take being the guy that only had one day. When somebody when somebody else that had 30 days, huh. uh, now I had to see and perceive as someone that had, you know, that was doing better than me or whatever. And I, and I viewed it that way, unfortunately. So coming back after a relapse was an admission of failure as opposed right. to a cry for help. And, and I stayed and st- I stayed until I got another paycheck. Ego and yeah. pride, man, just just huge. Just and I didn't know it then. I, I didn't identify it as that. I just thought, I thought man, I'm yeah. out of here. From that time yeah. when I relapsed the next time, it was not a, a month. Within a month, I was sitting in jail going to prison. I, I mean, literally. Tell me a little bit more about that, about the, the jail to prison uh, experience. Well, that time, uh, my, my, my brother, who's now deceased from alcoholism, and I robbed a drugstore, <laughs> mm-hmm. and we got caught almost immediately and uh and we went to jail and then we both ended up going to prison and um Hmm. went down did a couple of years got out and went down there resentful and mad Mm -hmm. never went to aa never even tried to uh, Mm -hmm. uh, you know there was some people from recovery that stayed in touch with me and one of the guys you probably knew greg lovelidge yeah so greg who's now deceased uh yeah liver disease but he had 40 something years when he died and and uh, he and greg had always stayed in touch with me uh-huh. he he uh, he is one of the guys i had lived with back then hmm. and um so so uh-huh. i'd get out and i'd go by to see what they're doing in recovery and and, and it, you always feel like an outsider if you're not in and i i got this idea that um you know, the world was against me or something. You know, I had adopted a mentality of saying I was going to just go this, I'm going to be this best mm-hmm. other bad person or something. And I invested in that, unfortunately, for way too long. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. 
These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. You went to jail and then to prison for the robbing of the drugstore. How long were you in prison that time before you got out? Three and a half years that time, first time. So you, so you get out of prison, you go right back to what you were doing and even more so? Uh, so I went, I went to prison three and a half years, got out. So my, my brother got out about a month later. We were out three months, got busted again. He got shot and didn't die. Another guy in the robbery did die. And we got convicted, went back to mm. prison, um, stayed uh, six years that time, and got out. Um, came right back out and, and did mm-hmm. almost the ex- exact same time. You know, so it was three months, then six months, then nine months, and it was each time I went right back to almost identical. It's like not not much different. And in prison, I was just learning more stuff about yeah. uh, nothing that was particularly productive. I did go to some college, but I wasn't going with any kind of a, you know, kind of a, a, a approach towards doing anything. Right. And then um, the, the last time after I'd stayed out nine months, I ended up, I got a life sentence for, for and each, each time it was for uh, robbery. So like robbery, robbery, robbery. So by the time you're, you're convicted the third time, that's where that sentence came from, that life sentence? Right. That's correct. How did you How did you feel when when that went down for you? Uh, I'm just curious. I've never known anybody who's been in prison for a life sentence before. That's why I was asking. Yeah. So it, so initially, it, 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 all the air goes out of the balloon. But you but you have by that time you're used to the way the system works, and you realize that what you're facing. So you realize it's a possibility. And mm. and then you, uh, and so it's, uh, I remember right before um, I, I thought I'd got away with a bunch of stuff that had I got caught, I would have already been back. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and this friend of mine was going to, um, uh, was going through a financial difficulty as a guy I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And I uh, was like a brother to us. And uh, his family was like, my second family there mm-hmm. in Bel Air, and and he was going through some hard times, and I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And then I I heard him out. Um, he had um, he'd gone out, and his car wouldn't start. And I heard him, you know, um, uh, cussing and moaning. He came back in and was looking for a gun. He said he wanted to go sell it. And his wife, uh, who I'd seen the gun and the bullets the yeah. night before, and and uh, when he was looking for it. I said, give him the gun. Yeah. You know, and she said, no, he might kill himself. She, he's, I think he's, you know, she's, and I thought, no, he's going to kill himself. And she says, you don't know. You haven't been around, Tom. And I, I thought, well, give me the bullets and then give him the gun. If he's, you know, yeah. he'll, he'll go sell the gun. He's going to sell the gun. He doesn't have to sell the bullets with it. Right. And, and um, so she gave him the gun and, and then he went back out in the car and I could hear him beating on the steering wheel, you know, and uh, uh-huh. crying. So I went out there and said, what's up? And he, and he started telling me how he, you know, he everything he was presenting to me up there was a, 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 a fraud. He, mm. he, he was in debt in four or five different kinds of ways and yeah, was stuck out. Yeah. 
And I told him, you know, that um, nothing's worth that. I says, you know, the, I says the worst that can happen to me is I get a life sentence by going doing a robbery, hmm. and um, which was, you know, eventually what happened. Wow. Yeah. But I, but I was would have see, and, and I don't want to make it sound like it's him because I would right. have been to, I would have, I wasn't on any path to doing something better. I was just kind of in a holding pattern. So you got, how old were you when you got the life sentence? 36, 37. Okay, so 36, 37. And how how long did you, or or how long did you serve uh, before you were paroled? I did uh, 20 calendar years to become eligible, and then I made my first eligibility for parole. Huh. So what was so you weren't sober yet when you went in for the life sentence? Mm-hmm. Uh, how did how did AA or recovery materialize for you in prison? So, so when I uh, I got busted, I got busted in Austin, and um, which I'd been kind of I don't want to say living there because but I was you know mm-hmm. but I was I was staying there and I knew a bunch of people the the people a lot of people I knew from Houston and particularly from Bel Air their yeah. musicians had, had all moved up there so I knew sure. a bunch of people in the area so I come into the jail and the jail there's a guy who you I probably met Kern yeah. so Kern was the counselor for the drug program there. I did not know him then. Uh-huh. Didn't even know because he was in Austin. I didn't know he was even that he was uh, he was had been raised in Houston. Uh-huh. And he was running this drug treatment program. And they had all these guys like uh, Stevie Ray's band and yeah. all these other musicians uh-huh. that were coming into the jail there. They were all sober. And yeah. I thought sober looked kind of cool. Uh-huh. Then with these guys, these rock and roll guys that have you know uh-huh. more money and more money than I thought was you know <laughs> anybody could ever. You know, spend. They were up there doing volunteer work in, hmm. in the county jail, bringing meetings uh, in there to uh, uh, to the county jail in Travis County. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started going to meetings. You know, part of it was just something to do. Part of it was, you know, but then I saw these guys and I thought they all seemed sincere and pretty solid people. Mm-hmm. But but I wasn't done yet. But I but I got like a year sober, almost telling the truth. Almost working the program. Uh-huh. <laughs> Almost. It was part-time AA, right? <laughs> well, it was, you know, I mean, it was, it was like, I, you know, I was still thinking about escaping would be better than going to prison for life. You know, yeah. there's a lot of stuff I was still like, you know, kind of thought that was entertaining the idea. Mm-hmm. And um, then when I got the life sentence, which, which I fairly well was certain I would get a bunch of time, if not that much. Yeah. Uh, but something like that. I would still hold on to a handcuff key, you know, sure. with, the, with the possibility of, you know, trying to, you know, like go south if I could. Sure. When I got the life sentence, I remember it's just like all the wind went out of my sails. Yeah. You know, and uh, the lawyer that I was that represented me was a guy I grew up with. Again, he was mm-hmm. right there. He was a surfer, mm-hmm. rock and roll music guy sure. that, that was from our part of town. And, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and I had been sober a year and he said, what do you want me to bring you? And I thought, well, just bring me some narcotics, you know, <sighs> and and he did. Yeah, huh. I mean, he brought you know, he just brought him up there to the jail, and mm-hmm. and, uh, and I got loaded for a couple of days, and I thought, well, I got to get straight, and I got straight trying to work on my appeal for a while, mm-hmm. and um, I ended up by the time I got back to prison, where uh, I went back to the same unit I'd been to a couple of times before because mm-hmm. of uh, a prior escape. Uh, uh, that I had on my record, I went to mm-hmm. a, a unit called Ellis where death row was. Right. And um, as soon as I walked in, 
you know, I mean, guys were walking up to me in the hallway going, don't worry about anything. You know, we got we got a fan for you. We got a radio. One guy walked up and handed me a, a marijuana cigarette wow. and, a, and a quick handshake at the at, right in front of the like I'm, I'm sitting outside the major's office waiting to get a cell assignment. <laughs> and somebody walked up and said, here, man, you know, it's good to have you back. You know, oh. I, I mean, I, I you know, prison had, had become home. I was home. Yeah. You know, I got back to my spot, but I didn't I didn't um, use anything for a little while. You know, and I went to some, they had AA meetings in the chapel and I went down there and then I realized that, you know, uh, there was a, a lot of, I could do something different in there and it wasn't doing something to get sober. I started uh, smuggling drugs in and mm-hmm. you know, drinking and we drank and smoked pretty much every day. So that was, uh, I got arrested in 87 and I got to the actual facility probably in late 88, early 89. Mm-hmm. And then, so, and then. By the end of 92, I had, you know, run the wheels off of it. We were, hmm. yeah, you know, we were being addicted in prison and drinking all the time. And, you know, we just amazing. And there was, Ann Richards was the, the governor uh-huh. and they had started a recovery dormitory. Mm-hmm. And the recovery dormitory gave us an opportunity to have, you know, kind of a peer support. Mm-hmm. I wanted an AA give yeah. So and then and then we had AA some really good people mm-hmm. that are still active in Houston, Rito mm-hmm. and Chuck and a bunch yeah. of those guys that are still do volunteer oh, work. Yeah. We're coming in and uh, doing vol- bringing meetings there to the facility. This was the Ellis unit you're talking about, right? And so they were they were bringing meetings to the facility. And would they came every week, mm-hmm. and we were in a like a treatment program, like mm-hmm. where they actually we went to stuff where we started processing things, and mm-hmm. I started looking at the things that had been blockages from the past, and I got to the point where in there, I became like a different person. I started being able, I I had credibility as a an inmate, mm-hmm. convict, whatever you want to call them, sure. and so I had credibility. I I built a world that I lived in. Toward, I had the respect of people there because I'd come and gone so many times. And, and what I did in there and the way I lived as a inmate, though, not as a convict. And so um, then I started changing. Now, something happened. You know, like, uh, the actual compulsion that was, re- was removed. You know, I did what I didn't believe would work. I got on my knees and prayed to a God I didn't necessarily believe in. Yeah, you know, I, I got a I got a big book. I got a sponsor. I started working the steps. Mm-hmm. I started going to meetings. Started turning down things I used to say yes to. I quit mm-hmm. stealing. You know, I didn't have a we- I got rid of any weapons I had. So I, I I never you know I've never used a weapon since then. Mm-hmm. You know, never never had one and was thinking about using one. I've only been in two fist fights and one was uh, both of them. I made an amends immediately afterwards and neither one wow. of them was very long. It was a couple of you know quick. Like emotional yeah. punches, you know. So was that behavior that come out of one burning bush experience or one turning point or moment of clarity for you, or or was that a, a gradual coming to the truth? Um, once the compulsion was removed, so once again, I mean, I, I can I, I remember talking to my sponsor. There was like a point, like maybe three months in. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember exact date, but there was an event that was emotional enough that in the past I guaranteedly would have um, would have wa- I would have at least been overwhelmed with wanting to use mm-hmm. or drink if I hadn't gone ahead and acted on it I would have had that you know and it didn't happen that way wow. I remember uh, saying that 
to, to him, and he said, we're going to start, we're going to bear down on your character defects. The amends was a piece of it, but it was that continuing, you know, we say that our, you know, that we ask for God to remove our character defects, mm-hmm. but everybody that's been sober a while knows that not exactly how that works. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know it, it works that you, that you ask God to remove them. It doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. that they're all necessarily all gone. Yeah, it's in the asking. Now, was this the man who was working with you, was he your sponsor and was he an inmate there with you? That's right. Is it different of a duck as a guy? And I remember asking the counselor there, I said, well, who do I, you know, what am I looking for in a sponsor? And he said, somebody that's got something that you want. Hmm. And I want hmm. long-term sobriety. Hmm. And this guy had come back to jail without relapsing. So he was had like 12 years sober. He had some other behavior that he, you know, that he alleged he didn't do. But, but he was, a uh, had been, um, an officer, you know, an army rangers. He was raised in some rural Oklahoma town. He, so he was like a small town guy. He wasn't a dope fiend guy. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a criminal or nothing. But I would see that he was active in the group. He was participated in the mm-hmm. group. He was there all the time. He, uh, he knew the book, mm-hmm. you know, and he, he didn't seem um, disingenuous. Yeah. So he was like, like he was maybe living it to me. As yeah. best he, could. he would be willing to be wrong and uh, yeah. eat crow and stuff like that. And I, I thought, yeah. you know, so. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I just was wondering, as you were saying all that, how did you reconcile the the hopefulness of getting sober and having the compulsion to use and drink uh, removed? How did you reconcile that with the hopelessness of a life sentence in prison? So I thought, well, you know, at some point I, I accepted the fact that uh, I might not ever get out of prison. Mm. I thought, well, I've created this world, mm. but I didn't like the human being that I was. Mm-hmm. I didn't like. I didn't like living in the skin and doing things the way I'd been doing them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, what the program gave me was an opportunity in there. And there were some other people uh, that you know, also gave me permission to be able to do something different. Uh-huh. So I started looking at practicing the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous uh-huh. in all my affairs in prison. Wow! So I would start. That was a bunch of stuff that we did. Wow. You know, I mean, like, uh, for me, as time went on in there, if somebody stole something, then what you would do is you would, you what they usually would beat them up. Right. And, and so I was had acquired a path of nonviolence. And so mm. I thought, yeah, I don't endorse stealing from uh, other people in my living area. And there was a thief and they were mm-hmm. trying to find out who it was and catch them and beat them off the tank. Mm-hmm. So I put a sign up that said, can we come together in nonviolence and pray mm-hmm. for this individual, you know, for a, for a nonviolent uh, uh, outcome mm-hmm. in this situation? You know? And a bunch of guys signed their name that they would join me at a particular time of day to mm-hmm. you know, pr- pray about that particular outcome. Mm-hmm. And the stealing stopped for a few months. Hmm. It wasn't forever, but the thing was it made a difference. And then uh, I remember on um, – Nine nine ninety nine. The threat of Y two K was coming, and right. at that particular time, nine nine ninety nine was going to be the first indication that the computer systems were going to fail because all the everything right. was going to be right. nines. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so everybody, people that were very spiritual and all this other stuff, mm-hmm. were freaking out. They they, were. Everybody thought, well, the system's going to fail, and we won't be able to get our commissary from commissary. And I, and it really affected me in a, a way that strongly. And I thought, man, 
maybe we can do something about that. And so I got the idea that we could just, I could give away soup, the little ramen noodle soup mm-hmm. that cost a quarter. Mm-hmm. But in, in prison, a, a, a 25 cent soup is, uh, can be a meal if the food's really bad and you've mm-hmm. got to eat something on your own. If you don't mm-hmm. have that, then you're really hungry. It fills up the space. Yeah. And so I got a bunch of soups mm-hmm. and, uh, found another fella that mm-hmm. would give them away. And I put it, made up a, a sign. And started, I said, soups for free and wow. started giving away soup. And I did it. Uh, and my objective then was to start uh, to go from nine nine ninety nine or the there right. closely thereafter until my sobriety date on January the 6th and then see how that went. So I made a commitment wow. to do it that however three or four months. Yeah. And then we did it. I did it about two years every day. And, and it, initially people go, this won't work. Yeah. You cannot give with this in prison. They have uh-huh. a, what inmates have their own little stores where they sell stuff for uh-huh. 50% interest. Yeah. And they said, you can't do this. Your people are going to take advantage of you. I said, well, if they do, that's their karma. Wow. You know, I'm a, I'm going to give it away and we'll see. And so people would come, a, a couple of guys came and just got soups when they didn't need them uh-huh. to prove to me that people would take advantage of me. Uh-huh. And, and I gave them the soups anyway. Uh-huh. And then when they went to the commissary, they brought soups back and in an excess of what they had borrowed right you know, not because they weren't borrowing them i was giving them they so they brought they said i don't know what you're doing hmm. you know we're we're, <laughs> we're gonna put some money into this deal because i don't know we've never seen anybody do this before <laughs> so it was it was a commitment to helping others that helped you keep your commitment to yourself of staying sober is that is right. that a reasonable way to put it? So yeah. obviously right now I'm not talking to you in prison. So somewhere along the way, while you were sober, you got out of prison. Can you tell us just a little bit about that and then what happened in Alcoholics Anonymous for you around that time? Um, so I became eligible in uh, uh, 2007 mm-hmm. and so after 20 calendar years. Mm-hmm. And I, I, long story short, um, I, I I made my first parole, which mm-hmm. is unusual. I found out about it. Uh, it was curious. The day that my dad got killed, mm-hmm. uh, 50 years earlier, I, I, I got informed that I'd made parole. I, I was released. That's amazing. Um, the Friday before Mother's Day oh. in 2008. Wow. And uh, and when I came home, uh-huh. John Gordon, God bless his soul, yeah. who's not any longer with us, but yeah. had long-term sobriety. He, Good man. He, yeah. He and Steve M., mm-hmm. uh, Russell L., mm-hmm. and uh, all uh, came and brought a meeting uh, to to the house. I, for three or four days, I had a monitor. It wasn't three or four days that I had a monitor, but for the, mm-hmm. until I could get in and get some travel uh, permits and stuff like that, I... They, they came and brought meetings to me, and they really didn't know me. They were friends of Greg's, mm-hmm. you know, and they uh, and Greg was living in Austin, right. around, around Rock at that uh-huh. time. Uh-huh. And, and so he called them, and they, they came and brought meetings to me. You know, wow. and of course, now, I you know, as, as, as you would know, I became, you know, friends with all of those guys. Yeah, and you later on would be the guy who was doing that for others. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Right. You know, I remember you saying something that stuck with me since then about the odds of you getting parole, how slim they were. And then you drew on what you had been doing in AA and and, and credited that with 
being a big reason why that miracle happened. Right. The percentages were one in 10. Huh. It was an 11% chance based on their system. Hmm. And the guy that interviewed me actually told me, he says, man, you know, you've gone to college, you've got a degree now, mm-hmm. you go to AA all the time, you do volunteer work, you're doing all this stuff, you know. And he said, um, on paper, you look good. He says, you're, but your criminal history is terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, despite what you're doing right now, and he says, look, you know, you know, you don't have any tattoos. Uh, you know, you, you speak as if you're well educated. Right. <laughs> you know, so, um, he, he said, normally, uh, but he said, and he told me, he says, you won't make parole. And I said, I, you know, I said, I might not make parole, but according to your system, uh, there's a, I have a one in 10 chance. And I says, that's one square on a shotgun pool <laughs> in a football, <laughs> on a football pool, you know, and I've won with one square and I haven't had a square on the pool, on the pool for 20 years. So, wow. you know, I'm going to take my, my little, you know, what I got. Uh-huh. And, and the truth was, I knew that if I didn't make parole, which I didn't actually expect to make parole, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, um, uh, I could be there for the rest of my time. I had some peace of mind and serenity that said, I can be there doing the work. Wow. I can be there doing the work. And there was work. There's always work. To, there's always work to do there. So so you were in your mid, mid-50s when you were released? Right. So, and I know the men you're talking about, and they're, they're just, especially John. John was a very close friend of mine, and you and I both sat by his bedside when he was dying and sure. uh, of, of liver of liver disease, and uh, he was just a, a, a beautiful man. I came to know you, I guess, shortly after you got out of prison. I never would have known from your demeanor or anything about it that you had been to prison until it came up. And then it was like, what? So there was something about you in the early days of seeing you over the Delta that made me think, wow, I, I, I found it hard to believe that you had been in prison because you were well-spoken and you were well-versed in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I've always I've kept studying. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I and I practice it. I think it's like, part of his studying because there's uh-huh. a, I, I love the literature. Yeah. And when they come out with the, the last book that they came up with all Bill's um, the talks. Yeah. Were, yeah. Are, yeah. Are, are phenomenally informative. Yeah. Our great responsibility. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, yeah. It's, it's it's just like full of just great stuff. Yeah. It was his talks at the uh, at the various conventions starting in 1955. And uh if for anybody who hasn't seen that book, it's it's very informative and it kind of gives you a little bit different perspective, because he he wrote a book about the business. Well, they he didn't write the book, but all of his speeches and everything are in that book, uh, that talked about the business end and the formation of the traditions and everything else and the difficulties they had in the early days. So, yeah, I would highly recommend that that book as well. So you're out of prison. You're going to AA all the time. The years are passing by you had been sober how long when you got out of prison that would have been uh so it's, ooh, 14 uh, years yeah 14 15 okay so in in the intervening years between release from prison and let's say very recently were there were there times in your life that tried your tried your serenity or tried your uh commitment to AA and could you speak to maybe a few times when AA was there for you to to help you through oh I could say when my 
I, when, when my mom died, when my brother died, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so both my baby brothers have died from alcoholism. Both uh-huh. of them had been in the program to a degree hmm. and had, 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 had gone back out. And so that my, my mother, you know, I mean, and people, man, the church was not only full of people that, you know, that were uh, close to my mother, but there were so many people that came from uh, my home group, you know, when they had the uh, when they had the funeral mm-hmm. that it was and it was uh, an amazing and they handled everything mm-hmm. the girls the women came to me and says just get out of the way hmm. you know and they took over you know uh per, you know preparing you know for the stuff afterwards mm-hmm. and everything so mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. it was uh, an amazing experience um i i, I think you know, John's the one that got me to go back into uh, the recovery field. You know, John. John was actually. Yeah. Um, we. You know, we went to. Eat. He. He already had his diagnosis with can with cancer, and and he had told me. He says, "Have you ever thought about going back into the field?" And I said, "Nah, too much pain and suffering. <laughs> 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 get, get enough. Get enough of that. Just doing volunteer work." Yeah. Yeah. And and he's and he told me you ought to consider it. Yeah. And and then he, you know, and then what I've learned in the program and I've, I've used this all the time is that, you know, my first thoughts is often not right. Right. And um, so and what I did is I called my sponsor. Yeah. So what I did was is you know, I, I, I knew that John believed he said you'd be good at it. You ought to, you ought to really give it some consideration. Uh-huh. And then the fact that he had reiterated that before we left, he said at the beginning and then he didn't push it. He has. He was intelligent enough not not to push it. And then he just said, "You ought to, you know, make this phone call and see." Huh. And and then I thought, "Well, who am I to say no? Because I don't know, <laughs> you know." And I was looking for I was looking for something uh, another. I was looking for something else to do right there. Right. And so I, I I made a call and I talked to my uh, girlfriend and I and everybody said you, I don't know why you're not doing it and so mm-hmm. I thought well you know they're not going to let me the state of Texas I'll I'll prove to y'all y'all are wrong huh. and, and then the state of Texas said yes <laughs> so, so anyway so I've been doing that for a decade or so boy now. talk about coming talk about coming full circle Tom that is that's that's really amazing I've I've seen you go through the things with your mother. And, and the tragedies of your of your of your brothers over that period of time. And what I know about you is that you are even before you landed in the the recovery work uh, as employment. I've seen you. Re- you are the hand that's been reaching out. You're the you're the the guy with the uh, AA pledge or the responsibility. I've seen that over and over again over the years. And uh, where did you learn that from? Or is that just something kind of innate? Well, it was how I was sponsored. Huh. Know, I had a service work sponsor. I didn't know that people, you know, get sponsored sometimes and they don't, aren't given us, you know, that take on a service commitment. Huh. Uh-huh. And so just like with you and uh, some of the other uh, people that we know, mm-hmm. uh, that and you'll see like you know Larry that makes the coffee or yeah, something like yeah. that you know what I mean and it can be just as sim- uh, simple as the person that goes in and straightens up or puts the chairs out or yeah, whatever it is yeah. that comes behind people without saying hey what you know here look at me right you know so it's been a where where my home group is there you know in normal times non COVID times right you know there's a, a lot of opportunities for service over there and um, yeah new people coming in all the time. 
Yeah. And it's sometimes it's sometimes it's the, you know, it's being there to, you know, welcome the new person, just have a, like your, your handshake uh, thing and getting to know people initially. I've got, uh, I've developed over time. Of, it's, it's, I don't have a problem walking up to somebody and introducing myself and just saying hello. Yeah. You know, giving them my phone number uh, and, and try to feel like I've got a fair feel for if I seems like they're, not open to that that i could just re- let that go yeah you know, yeah you know, i mean i don't, I don't they don't have to do anything you know but yeah. i want them to know that I, I can remember what it felt like to come in and sit on the back row and not want to be called on <laughs> right and not want to be there perhaps right right, the, right. Uh, going back to your first exposure uh to aa yeah. so you've you've lived this extraordinary life for quite a number of years now, almost 28 years sober coming up. When when you meet somebody that's new or maybe questioning whether or not they feel like they really have a problem, whether they really want to be in AA, maybe the court has uh, made them come a certain number of times. Given your experience and how vastly different as compared to most newcomers, a guy who was in prison for life and then he's out, now he's in the recovery, how do you bridge the gap between the experience that you have and the way that they see that experience do, do you find that they that that, that creates uh, a greater reluctance to work with you or to talk with you or or are they more drawn to you i don't know if i'm asking that question right so it's it's a good question yeah because i don't i don't keep from i'm willing to talk about having been to prison right. i don't think it's a, i don't think it's a selling point right right <laughs> say, <laughs> I've been to prison, you know, if I, I spent 34 years incarcerated and that's well, this is, you know, so then by said, well, you need to be an A. <laughs> so there's an energy yeah. that I, you know, I hate to talk in energy, but so there's an energy yeah. that, that I, that I know is true. Yeah. I think it's a spiritual energy. Uh-huh. It's a product of being plugged into Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. There's a, a line in the, the, there's there's a, there's a part in the twelve and twelve, and one one of the things that uh, it it says that it's an individual adventure. They talk about meditation, sure, and you know, and they'll say it's an individual adventure, each to be developed in his own way. Mm. One of the first fruits is uh, emotional balance, and I thought I said, why wouldn't you want that? Uh-huh. Right? So, and I took to that i had practice a spiritual practice before and i just fell away from it so when i got back this time i was so anxious when i first got sober i understand how how people feel and for many new people i work with unless they you've been in enough meetings with me i I don't have a problem talking about it but i don't have to talk about it all the time and for most people is you might as well be saying well i used to live in africa right you know or or some country somebody's never lived in before right they can't relate and you say, oh, yeah, I spent 10 years in Ch- China, and they, they think, oh, wow, but that was weird. And they just go right on right to something on. that they're more familiar with. Right on. But but you have the the kind of the rare qualifications to talk to the guy who's sitting there comparing his insides to everybody else's outsides, who's been to prison and may still be holding on to some of the things that would be barriers to being content in AA. You're the guy who can go talk to him with a level of understanding that surpasses a guy like me who doesn't have that particular experience. But, you know, you're, you're, I'll say this, and for when we were inside, the people that came in, initially, I, the people I was drawn to, and this is just a kind of, a, I think, early recovery thing, no matter where you're located, uh-huh. is that they're, 
you're, you're drawn to something that looks similar to you. Yeah. They, yeah. they talk sort of the same. They sound sort of the same. But some of the people whose sobriety that really impressed me were people that were coming into prison because the people in prison n- knew you know, about getting into prison, they did want, you know, it was, how do you stay out? Yeah. And, and you, you stay out by learning to abide by the rules and regulations, not put alcohol and drugs in your body and stuff like that. There's some things that, uh, a a guy like you doesn't, what you know, well, is Uh what it took for you to not drink anymore. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. And people, uh, you know, you know, my first sponsor was like as you know, like I say, he was as different as night and day to any life I'd lived. Yeah, I get that. The sponsor that I used after I got after him mm-hmm. was the same way, and Jimmy S. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but we love, we I love him. Yeah, I do too. He's a good man, and uh, obviously, he's doing a good job with you, uh, based on what I know about you and the the way I see you interact with other people around around the club. This has been pretty amazing and I think very inspiring to be able to talk to you like this and be able to share this as part of the AA Recovery Interviews podcast that it may reach some other people out there. I want to ask you maybe just one other thing, and I've been asking all my guests this, and that is about the opportunity versus the difficulties that have arisen because of having to do meetings by Zoom. How you just feel about the whole format and and what we have been elevated to or reduced to by the virus. Huh. It's interesting. It's a great because we reach more people all around the world. Yeah. And we can connect with people all around the world. So right. but we can only do it at an international conference on a really brief way for a weekend. Yeah. We can do every day now. So yeah. that's a blessing. Yeah, that is. Guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Uh, comparably, there are enough small groups, and you and I attend some, mm-hmm. you know, where it's very intimate, not unlike the traditional home group feels. Right. Some of the other groups have been eaten up by a large number of people, and it feels like a great big giant meeting where you might be at, at an international conference. Yeah. But um, and for some of those are, are uncomfortable for me because they're different. Uh, my expectation mm-hmm. is that this meeting I go to that has this name would be the meeting that I was used to from the past, and it's not that meeting anymore. Some of them have remained very close to what they are because mm-hmm. I go to a number of Zoom meetings. For me, it's family. Yeah. Alcoholics Anonymous is my family. And, I can, and, I've, and I've learned wherever I went to a meeting, anywhere in, in these United States, and I have not been to any outside the United States other than on Zoom, uh-huh. that, but that I find my people. It's a benefit. Now, it's also you miss the the, the, the interpersonal communication. Yeah, and the ability so, to be able to just grab people after the meeting. Or one of the things I know that I miss the most, although I'm I'm really grateful for Zoom uh, allowing us to continue to do what we need to do. But the one thing I do miss is the spontaneous laughter because right. when somebody is speaking, it's it's almost impossible to be able to time it such that you can hear everybody laugh. But I haven't found it to be too bad of a substitute. I, I'm always grateful to see you on the Zoom meetings that you and I attend. And you and I have a tendency to attend the same kind of smaller, more intimate meetings, although I go to several that are very, very large as well. Um, but I consider any group I go to, my you know, they say get a home group. I consider any group I go to my home group because I feel at home in AA. So mm-hmm. everywhere I go, I'm at home. And it's a I don't know if you feel that way, but I, I, I kind of sense you do, uh, given the, the number of meetings you and I have frequented together over the years. 
Yeah, I can find. I, I don't need just a particular. I I have my people. Yeah, you know, and sure. I know you've got your people. Yeah. But, but I've had I've had other people, and you know, and we've lost you know some through yeah. just like mm-hmm. life's life, and and they get yeah. you get old, and you stay sober long enough, then you sometimes things happen. Yeah, but, yeah, I get that. Well, Tom, thank you for for doing this. Was there anything else that that you'd like to leave uh, our listeners with as we as we wrap this up? I got a little thing. Let's see how it goes across. So take a, just a minute. Mm-hmm. If we can begin to have dreams for each other, we can build something new. It can be. If we're building something new, we can ask God to help us. And we will be busy while we are asking. I think God likes to help people who are already busy working for their dreams. Mm-hmm. Amen. That is a beautiful, beautiful sentiment. And I'm going to need to play that back for so I can memorize it. Tom D., you, you're a beautiful man, and I love you. You're a great AA brother, and I really appreciate you doing this today, just taking the time to, to let other people get to know you better. I, I wish you well, and I'll see you at a meeting in the next day or two. Absolutely will. <laughs> okay, I, brother. I love you. You know yeah. how I love you. Yeah, I love you. You're one of my guys. Man. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I like being yeah. one of your guys, man. Yeah. I, this is a, definitely a posse I want to be in. So, God bless you, Tom, and uh, thanks for doing this. Thank you for the opportunity. God bless you, brother. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your sponsees, fellow AAs, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Tell them how to subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. I'd be grateful if you can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.